What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, happy Friday, happy last Friday of Advent, and welcome to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you're a non-Catholic, that could be anything, any faith or no faith, and you've got a question about the Catholic faith, why not call us and get that question answered? Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in, uh, I don't know, Zanzibar, and uh, you've got a question, uh, give us a call at one 205 271 2985. And you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Michael McCarl's our producer today. We also have uh, Jeff Burson handling social media for us. Matt Kabinsky is on the phones. By the way, if you uh, would like to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming on both, both platforms right now. All you have to do is uh, put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio. Love to get that question of yours answered on today's program. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? I'm great. Are you ready for Christmas? Here um, it is. Almost. 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 I have a little bit of Christmas shopping left to do. Just that one. You know what? I I bought my last gift yesterday on the way home from the network, so you're good to go. Good to go. Here's a question from uh, Dustin to lead us off today. I'm a bit confused about some of the figures in the Old Testament, specifically their moral activity. For example, King Solomon had scores of wives and concubines, which would be adulterous. How was it then that possible that he had such a close union with God while also living in what we would consider to be unrepented sin? Was polygamy and keeping concubines permissible under the Old Testament? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Um, Who said that King Solomon had an incredibly intimate relationship with God? Solomon did quite badly. He did badly, and God punished him and Israel for his sins. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I don't. We, we we you don't have to hold up Solomon as a moral exemplar. Now to your other question, uh, polygamy was regulated in Old Testament law. That doesn't mean that it was ideal, but yeah. it existed in ancient Near Eastern society and it was regulated in the law. But it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't valorized. Okay, Dustin. Thanks for your email. Here's one from Bob in Austin, Texas. When the Catechism speaks of us participating in the Lord's sacrifice on the cross via the Eucharist. Exactly what does this mean? I get that it's not time travel, but what is the nature or supernature of this? Yeah, <coughs> thanks. I appreciate the question. So the, the nature of the sacrifice is that it is a symbolic representation of what took place on Calvary. Okay. With this addition, um, it also contains the same victim who died on Calvary. So I say it's a symbolic representation of Calvary because the double uh, consecration of bread and wine symbolizes the separation of Christ's body from his blood. And it's a symbol only 
in that respect, right? We don't actually separate Christ's body from his blood in the holy sacrifice of the Eucharist. Yeah. We, we only show it forth as separated by this double consecration of bread and wine. Now, the part that's not a mere symbol is the real presence. Jesus is truly present on the altar. That, that's not merely symbolic. Uh, but the death is merely symbolized. So the connection between the two, between Calvary and the Mass, is as follows, according to the Council of Trent, that the victim who was present in a bloody manner on the cross is present in the Mass in an unbloody manner. The priest who offered the sacrifice on the cross is also present in the sacrifice of the Mass, namely mm. Christ himself. Okay. And the reason that Christ gave himself on the cross to reconcile man to God is also at one with the sacrifice of the Mass. So um, uh, they are... Uh, uh, numerically distinct, but specifically identical sacrifices. Okay. And uh, Bob, thanks so much for your question from Austin. Uh, you may remember the Tuesday show, David. This is a question from uh, Deacon Lewis in Michigan. Can you give me a printed source or clearer languages, uh, clearer language on the three prejudices of Luther are on Scripture from the Tuesday show. Do you remember all that? Yeah, this is the third time we've had this question. I know. So the, what, what set this off was a, a fellow called the show a couple days ago, and he wanted to know if he participated in a Protestant Bible study, should he be on guard against anything? Would there be any kind of prejudices or, or, uh, or presuppositions that might guide his Protestant interlocutors in the way they interpreted the Bible that he as a Catholic should be aware of? And so I listed a few. Now, in terms of, you know, what sources would I cite? I mean, I was literally shooting from the hip here yeah. and, and drawing on my knowledge of Protestant hermeneutics for, you know, the last 50 years. Um, I mean, these these Protestant doctrines are embedded in Protestant confessions of mm -hmm. faith, so you can go study those confessions of faith. But I don't have a book just on these three prejudices, okay? But in a long, long, long story short, this is what I said, and this is what I'll repeat. There may be more, but these are the fundamental ones. First of all, Protestants believe that the Bible is the Church's sole rule of faith, meaning they think that God gave us the Bible to tell us everything that we need to know about life and godliness, and that, uh, in fact, nothing can be put forth as a Christian doctrine unless it can be found explicitly within the pages of sacred Scripture. That's the so-called doctrine of sola scriptura. Okay. Now, that doctrine, which I hold to be false, I don't think that's what Scripture says about itself, I don't think there's any revelation that says that about Scripture, uh, I believe, as a Catholic, will necessarily lead the interpreter to radically misconstrue biblical passages uh, and misapply them to his or her life, right? Because—and I gave this illustration before, I'll give it again. Um, if you look at the Bible as the, as the unique and sufficient source of information about, say, Christian morality, then if you don't find something specifically addressed in the Bible, then you are want to conclude that the Bible <clears throat> uh, condones it, uh, or at least is neutral towards it, right? So if you don't find a specific prohibition in the Bible, you must think, well, it's okay, I can go ahead and do that thing because the Bible doesn't condemn it. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't tell you to draw that inference. But you will draw that inference if you hold a specific view of the Bible, and that's going to lead you to make some pretty bad moral choices in your life. Yeah. Okay. So that was prejudice number one. Uh, I think we got a couple more prejudices to complete, but we don't have time before the break. Isn't that right? We're about to go to a break. Yeah, pretty much so. Here comes the music. 
So uh, when we come back from the break, we'll hit those other two prejudices. A couple of uh, quick notes for you as our listener. Uh, Jeff Burson is doing the screening today in lieu of Matt Kabinsky and uh, Ace McKay handling social media. So uh, if you're sending us something via YouTube or Facebook, Ace is going to handle that. Jeff is going to handle the screening at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion. Stay with us. It's called a communion on this Friday afternoon, just before Christmas, here on EWTN with Dr. David Andrews. This is going to be your uh, your last chance to get that uh, question of yours answered before Christmas. Before Christmas, so wow! Uh, you may want to call right now while we have a line available for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We'll get to the phones in just a second here to recap that question uh, from Sue in Wisconsin. Is there one place where a person can find a list of? Uh, that's not it. Here it is. It's from uh, Deacon Lewis in Michigan. Can you give me a printed source or clearer language on the three prejudices of Luther on Scripture from the uh, Tuesday show? Yeah, thanks. So to recap, uh, I didn't say these were specifically or uniquely Luther's prejudices. I characterize these as typically Protestant prejudices about the nature of the Bible. Yes. Um, and, uh, uh, And I'll summarize them, and I'll try to be really brief and concise and clear. Um, the first prejudice is the view that the Bible is the sole rule of faith. That's number one. Protestants typically regard the Bible as the rule of faith for the Church, the so-called Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second prejudice you're going to find is the Protestant belief that the Bible is perspicuous, namely that uh, that a person of faith and goodwill can uh, approach the Bible and read it and necessarily understand what he needs to know for his salvation. Um, uh, the third prejudice that I listed was Luther's doctrine of law and gospel, whereby he divides all of the Bible into either commands and threats on the one hand or promises of grace on the other, and he interprets the threats and commands as having the function of frightening you into receiving God's grace. And so for Luther, they're not to be taken at face value. The Christian has no fear of the commands or the threats because he knows he's saved by faith alone. Now, that is obviously to misconstrue the nature of commands and threats in the Bible and to denude them of their moral force. And then I listed a fourth prejudice that is unique to fundamentalists, and that is uh, the view that the Bible is to be taken as literally true in its denotative sense from Genesis to Revelation, uh, leading to all kinds of... um, uh, absurdities about the relationship between faith and science and other such things. So those are the three prejudices. Uh, you'll find these more or less in any systematic account of the Bible and its nature in any sort of Protestant systematic theology. So you go pull, you know, any—just uh, to take one at random, uh, Wayne Grudem, evangelical theologian, his very popular— Oh, about an 800-page tome of systematic theology wow. is going to have a discussion of Scripture. You'll find this sort of thing in there. Millard J. Erickson, Southern Baptist theologian, uh, his systematic theology is going to contain this. Um, the um, you know the Princetonian theologians from the 19th century, the Presbyterians, B.B. Warfield and Charles Hodge and these fellows, they're all going to have discussions of this. Hodge's systematic theology is going to have a discussion of these doctrines. Uh, you're going to find them, you know, woven throughout Luther and, the, and Calvin's theology in the in the major doctrinal confessions, like the Westminster Confession, for example. Um, you might look at, um, um, oh goodness gracious, 
the name of the book has escaped me. I'll come back to it in a minute. Sorry. Okay, sounds good. Uh, Deacon Lewis, that should be helpful for you. A couple of great sources for you to uh, check into on your time. It is called a communion here on EWTN. A quick reminder here, we've been thinking about uh, our dear foundress, Mother Angelica, because uh, next week is the anniversary of the founding of EWTN Radio back in 1992. And right now, if you want to learn more about... Um, someone that I miss every day as I look at the picture when I come into the network every morning, uh, you can now visit EWTN's website dedicated to Mother Angelica, where you can celebrate her remarkable life. It's filled with photos and milestones, heartfelt stories, and of course, her wit and words that have inspired the hearts of all ages throughout the years, including my own <laughs> stony heart. Please visit EWTN.com slash Mother Angelica today, EWTN dot com slash Mother Angelica. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning here with Michael in St. Louis, listening today on YouTube. Michael, a blessed advent to you, sir. What's on your mind today? Well, hi there. Uh, I have a question for Dr. Anders. Uh, so full disclosure, I'm a doctoral student in a theology program, and uh, I love your lectures. I really appreciate them. You made a point uh, in a few of your lectures about how the primitivism that kind of inspired Luther's Sola Scriptura uh, stance, you linked it back to Gregory VII and the Gregorian Reform and the kind of the Benedictine Cluniac Reform. I'd love to hear you talk about that for a second, and do you have a source that kind of links those things together? Because I, I find that really fascinating. Yeah, sure. Um, so... A good secondary source that gives the prehistory of the Reformation is Stephen Osment's book, The Age of Reform. Stephen Osment, O-Z-M-E-N-T. Uh, that's one of many. I mean, this is it's fairly standard in Reformation studies to, to connect the developments in the Reformation to medieval and late medieval developments. Um, you know, someone else who was very keen on that was uh, Heiko Obermann, who was Osment's teacher. Uh, his works are very helpful. Um, but uh, uh, my position is that the Cluniac Reform, which, of course, predates the Gregorian Reform, was a monastic reform, the aim of which was to return Benedictine monasteries, Benedictine monasticism, to a strict observance of the rule. And so, you know, medieval uh, monasticism was an ancient institution. It had gone back for a thousand years, and many places it had become quite lax, and, and monks had become sometimes nothing more than pensioners who lived off of the, the income of the monastery, and some of them kept concubines and lived really dissolute lives. So I mean, if you read uh, Abelard's History of Calamities, for example, when he discusses his attempts to reform a particular monastery, the monks tried to kill him for his pains. You know, they really weren't monks, is wow. the point. They were just yeah. people who had taken over the monastery and were living on the grounds and living off the income. And uh, and they certainly weren't interested in obeying uh, the strictures of the Benedictine rule. So the Cluniac Reform was an attempt to restore the, the, the purity of Benedictine monasticism, specifically by appealing to an ancient model, namely the Benedictine rule. And that inspired uh, Gregory's reform. When he, he was brought up in the Cluniac reform, when he became pope, he applied the same principles to the reform of the papacy and the church, um, only instead of appealing to the Benedictine rule, he appealed to ancient canons. So in, not, not scripture specifically, but to the idea that the ancient law of the church was a model to which uh, contemporaries, his contemporaries ought to return. But he added the, uh, the really radical 
addition of uh, suggesting that the lay people were uh, absolved of their obedience to immoral clergy, and particularly to simoniacs and to uh, and to um, uh, the, the adulterous and fornicators. That simony, of course, is the crime of selling church offices and church goods, yeah. and uh, and that was a very radical move, right? Because it it invited the laity to scrutinize the moral qualities of the clergy and to determine their worthiness, right? And uh, yeah. and and that you know he didn't he didn't deny that unworthy clergy could validly offer the sacraments, but he denied that they should, right? And I won't say this is the only factor because there were economic and demographic factors as well. But that that helped foment an ideology of anti-clericalism. It wasn't the only source, but it helped foment an ideology of anti-clericalism and primitivism in uh, in 12th century Europe that we see uh, flowering in something like um, the Waldensian movement out of Lyon in the 12th century, uh-huh. uh, uh, the beggars and the bogomils, and uh, you'll read about them in Herbert Grunemann's book, Religious Movements of the Reli- of the Middle Ages. That's another good text mm-hmm. for you to take a look at. Um, and then, of course, the, uh, on the within the Orthodox camp, uh, the Franciscans and the Dominicans also were born out of this same time period. And the Franciscans themselves split between a kind of pro-papal faction and an anti-clerical, anti-papal faction, the so-called radical Franciscans. Mm-hmm. So by the time you get to the eve of the Reformation, by the time you get to Martin Luther in the, in the 1510s and the 1520s, you really have a you know s- several century long tradition of uh, of anti clerical protest of of more or less radical forms of Christianity, uh, of primitivist appeals to you know ancient models of piety uh, to reform the church. For Francis, it would have been appealing to the mode of life of Christ and the apostles. He yeah. also was highly devoted to the Bible as such. Um, to apostolic poverty, uh, Lester Little's book, uh, "The Poverty Movement of the of the Middle Ages," is one that you. It's a famous work in in, uh, in medieval studies that you might want to take a look at. So, the poverty movement, um, primitivism, the ancient canons, Cluniac reform, um, all of these things played into the the sort of uh, cultural milieu of the time. Um, uh, another, if you're working in this area, another text you definitely need to know is the famous essay. By um, by Jacques Lefebvre, um, and uh, the title is um, what is the title? It's a it's a French title. Um, it's like Les Causes de la Réforme, une question mal posée, which translates causes of the Reformation, a badly posed question. Ah. And uh, and his his contentions. You have to really look at the evolution of religious mentalities and not just look for some sort of. Uh, um, monocausational source for, for Luther's thought. So uh, Lefebvre is someone you want to look at. Um, Osment, you want to look at. Little is somebody you want to look at. Um, now that ought to keep you going. Absolutely. Michael, is that helpful for you, sir? Yes, thank you very much. You're most welcome. And if, if you, you want to send an email to the network, it'll make it my way. I can give you—I have about a 100-page bibliography on this stuff at home, but oh, wow. I, haven't, I haven't touched it in 20 years. So this is just what I can remember after 20 years. Sure, But sure. I can give you a more extensive biography uh, if you, or bibliography if you yeah. want to contact me through the network. Sounds good. And uh, you can also check out the podcast uh, just for a little refresher course on what David just explained to you. And you can see that at EWTN.com slash radio, EWTN com slash radio. Michael will have that posted for you, oh, in about uh, two hours or so. All right, that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. 
Free is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Free says, how can you know if something is grave matter, whether you have a lack of knowledge or rebellious ignorance and consent of the will? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So you remember the Supreme Court justice who said that he couldn't define pornography, but he knew it when he saw it? You bet. Right. Yeah. Um, some of this, I think, is it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's pedantic casuistry, I believe, to try to, uh, you know, really scruple over, you know, am I, am I 49 percent, uh, you know, grave matter and 51 percent not grave matter? And to try to, to try to parse your analysis of your sin and your moral culpability that way. Mm-hmm. I think most of us have a fairly reliable, fairly decent intuition about whether something that we have done is a grave offense against uh, human dignity and whether it's a triviality, unless, of course, you have an utterly seared conscience on the one hand or a terribly scrupulous conscience on the other. If you if you think that your your practical reasoning is is off base, is off kilter because of some kind of psychological impairment, then the way you address this question is not to rely on your own judgment, but to rely on that of a spiritual director. So, for instance, if you suffer if you suffer from scrupulosity. The scrupulous people think that everything is grave matter, mm-hmm. yeah. um, but their judgment is deeply irrational. It's very irrational, and so what they have to do is they have to put themselves in obedience to a spiritual director who tells them, um, uh, "No, taking the free pack of matches out of the ashtray in the restaurant—we don't have those anymore, <laughs> but they used to back in the yeah, day. You know, yeah. That is not grave matter, right? And I forbid you to ever confess that sin again in the confessional, right? You have to put yourself in somebody else's judgment." But, um, you know, most of us have an intuition about the difference between, say, if I lose my temper and say something uh, untoward towards a person that I love versus, you know, trying to go out and actively slander them to destroy their livelihood or their well-being. I mean, they're, 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 they're not the same, and we have an intuition sure. about that. I mean, you can find older manuals of moral theology from, say, the 19th or early 20th century that will draw hard and fast rules. I mean, moral theologians used to do things like, say— well, and if you steal more than this amount, it's grave matter, and if you steal less than that amount, it's it's not grave matter. And uh, you know, apart from the problem of inflation making mincemeat of those <laughs> of those numbers, that that kind of approach I think has fallen out of favor, yeah, you know, f- yeah. for practical reasons, because it might encourage somebody to say steal up to the ninety nine dollar mark, mm, you know, and then yeah. let it go after that. We don't want to do that, right? No. Um, uh, you know, as to whether or not you you have knowledge, that to me that's a strange question. It's odd to me for the, you know, I am not in ignorance about the things that I know I know. Yeah. I may be in ignorance about the things of which I'm ignorant. I mean, mm-hmm. I may not know everything I don't know, mm-hmm. but I tend to know what I do know, right? Like, I know that adultery is wrong. I sure. know that murder is wrong. I know that theft is wrong. I know that perjury is wrong. And I'm not in ignorance about knowing these things, right? Um, you would only know. You would only come to recognize your ignorance if, after the fact, uh, you know, you raised a question. And someone said, "Oh, did you know that's really deeply sinful?" And you went, "Oh my gosh, I really didn't know that." And I mean, you'll know. I mean, you have an immediate, intuitive knowledge of your own mind. Sure. So I don't think that the knowledge part is uh, is that uh, is that difficult. And also the consent of the will business. Um, the kind of cases where a person might lack consent of the will would be. Um, you know, if you're under some kind of extreme uh, coercion or distress, somebody puts a gun to your head, someone puts a gun to your child's head, uh, these kinds of instances, 
Um, or, uh, you know, if you lose your reason altogether, and it's obviously someone who loses their reason doesn't know anything and mm. isn't for, capable of forming a moral judgment one way or the other. Um, but um, at the end of the day, we don't necessarily know, and the, the church teaches that we can't have absolute certainty about whether or not we're in the state of grace or mortal sin. Um, and so we play it safe and we confess our sins and we humble ourselves and seek to amend our life and stay in touch with the sacraments and rely on the grace of God and ultimately leave the judgment of souls up to God. And there you go. Uh, Free, thanks so much for watching us this afternoon on YouTube. We're going to get to another question from YouTube from uh, the UK in just a couple of moments here. We will also take your phone calls at 833-288-3986. And there's a couple lines open for you right now. 833-288-EWTN. It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders on this Friday before Christmas. Do stay with us. called a communion with Dr. David Andrews on this Friday afternoon. This is your chance to get in on the phone calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. There's a line with your name on it right now. Hey, congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, Eucharist Radio. What a great name. Eucharist Radio is in Morganfield, Kentucky, and they are celebrating 14 years with us this week. So congratulations to Richard Nally and everybody at WEUC from your friends here at EWTN Radio. All right, lines are open for you at 833-288-EWTN. Chris is watching us in the UK from Arundel, also on YouTube. Chris says, did animals kill each other before the fall? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Um, just, just for humor's sake, there is a very funny approach to that question in the satire written by Mark Twain called The Diary of Adam and Eve, Ooh. right? In which, uh, of course, it's entirely fictitious. And, sure. and Twain um, has the tiger's in the Garden of Eden, li- in the Garden of Eden, living on strawberries. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Until after the fall, when they rend and tear one another wow. and eat their flesh. So, um, yeah, this is the kind of question that, of course, the text itself doesn't raise, and I think is not meant to answer. Um, so, the, you know, the question: what What did carnivores eat before? Uh, there were humans, I think, is fairly easily straightforward answered that they ate flesh. That's They're carnivores. That's yeah. what they do. Yeah. And uh, and the, the point of the first three chapters of the book of Genesis is not to answer questions about paleontology or, or, or um, you know, ancient biology or anything of the sort or geology. Sure. Really, it's about the moral situation of the human person and not about the evolution of animal species. All right, Chris, thanks so much for watching us in the UK today. Uh, Subramanian is watching on Facebook today. Uh, Subramanian says, why do Catholics call Christianity a religion? And do you believe that there is truth in other faiths? Yeah, thanks. So I find this an odd question because the category of religion, the term religion, is not something that Catholics invented. Uh, The word religio is a Latin word. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, and different uh, suppositions have been put forth to determine its etymology, but among the ancients it referred to uh, the form of life proper to the worship of the gods, um, and early Christians 
believed that that was a legitimate term to apply to what they were doing. St. Augustine wrote a text in the 4th century called De Vera Religione, On True Religion, in which he characterized Christianity as the proper way to worship the gods, and paganism and idolatry is the improper way, the false form of religion. So again, it's not a term Christians invented, but it's it was understood from antiquity to refer to the proper way to worship gods. Modern sociologists, anthropologists may have different understanding of what the word means or how it should be used. I rather like Robert Bella's definition of religion. He calls religion a, a, a set of beliefs and practices ordered to the sacred and forming a moral community. I think that's a pretty good definition, and it would encompass, of course, a lot of different things. A lot of different traditions could fall under that description. Yeah. But I think I could clearly recognize Christianity and or Catholicism as falling within that description of a set of beliefs and practices ordered to a conception of the sacred and forming a moral community. Okay. Um, do Catholics believe there is truth in other faiths? Absolutely. Of course there is. Manifestly, there's truth in other faiths. That, that goes without saying. I mean, uh, yeah, to be sure. Okay. Well, we'll leave it at that. Uh, Supermanian, thanks for watching us on Facebook this afternoon. Call to communion here on EWTN, and we go back to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Steve, a first-time caller in Denver, listening on Simple Radio. Hey there, Steve. Uh, blessed Advent to you, sir. What's on your mind today? Thank you, Tom and Dr. Anders. I have a Christmas-related question. I was uh, reading the Magnificat, Song by Mary when she was uh, when she got the visit from the angel, mm -hmm. and she had a very specific response. The language is very specific, exactly what she said to the angel when it appeared to her. And I wondered if that would have been passed down by oral tradition by Mary, or if that specific language in the scripture would have been added later by writers trying to fill in on what Mary may have said to the angel. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Of course, any answer we give to this is entirely speculative. It's entirely speculative. My own conviction of the matter is that uh, the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1 is, is Luke's composition, that this is not a blow-by-blow -blow account. This is not a stenographer's account of what took place between Mary and Gabriel. Uh, but is rather a, you know, the creative contribution of the gospel writer, inspired by God and the Holy Spirit, and authoritative. And, of course, it's part of the Church's patrimony of prayer and devotion, and rightly so. Uh -huh. uh, but it's not necessary, in my judgment, to hold that it is the literal words of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, obviously, I could be dead wrong about that. And perhaps uh, Mary had an infallible memory of her own pronouncement and handed it on uh, to, uh, to, to Christ as he was growing up and to the apostles when she met them. I suppose that's possible. I find that uh, unnecessary to believe that and, 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 um, and improbable. So that's my answer. All right, uh, Steve, thanks so much for your call. Glad that you're listening in Denver to Call to Communion here on EWTN. Here's a question now from uh, Vaughn watching us on YouTube today. Vaughn says, in the Apostles' Creed, it says that Jesus descended into hell. Could you touch upon that and explain its meaning and significance in more detail? Sure. The Catholic doctrine is that after his crucifixion and before his resurrection, that the soul of Christ descended to the abode of the dead to liberate the righteous dead of the Old Covenant from the so-called limbus of the fathers. So we're not talking here about a descent to the hell of the damned, 
uh, much less are we speaking about Christ himself suffering the alienation of the damned. No such thing occurred to him. Rather, we're talking about the harrowing of hell, the release from uh, the limbus of the fathers, those righteous souls of the old covenant who awaited the coming of the Messiah. Very good. Thanks so much uh, for watching us today on YouTube, Vaughn. Call to communion here on EWTN. Hey, it's the uh, last call for your call at 833-288-EWTN. If you call right now, we can probably get you on today's show at 833-288-3986. Here's a question I started to ask a little earlier. Uh, This is from Sue in Wisconsin. Is there one place where a person can find a list of all Catholic traditions and where they are to be found? I'm going to give you a cop-out answer. Okay. Yes, the one place would be the Catholic Church. <laughs> That's a good <laughs> there, answer. There's not one text. Okay. There's not one text. Um, it would be like asking the question, is there is there one place when I could get a comprehensive account of the American tradition? Oh, yeah. How could you possibly? Couldn't. How could you possibly? Mm-hmm. Because the American tradition would include, say, all the texts ever composed within the American experiment. Yeah. Couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. You yeah. couldn't. Um, so we can talk about tradition in a broad sense and a narrow sense. In the, in the narrow sense, when we talk about tradition, we're talking about divine revelation given by Christ mm-hmm. to the apostles— that's been faithfully handed on, either in writing or or orally, down for 2,000 years. And it contains, basically, it comprehends those things that are necessary for Catholics to believe. Um, There's a broader sense in which we can talk about tradition as everything that the Church does and has done to faithfully hand on that deposit of faith. And so the broader sense of tradition would include, well, say, all the writings of the Fathers— uh, it would include all the writings of theologians and, and, and doctors of the church and great mystics. It would include the lives of the saints themselves. It would include um, the whole history of Catholic liturgy, liturgies, East and West. Mm. It would include um, prayers and devotions. It would include art and architecture. It would include fiction. It would include, um, uh, you know, shrines and, and cemeteries and uh, uh, oral prayers and imagination and there's, there's just no way you could ever compose a text. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what scholars do is they typically find some some angle, some some specialty, some aspect of that broader tradition that is interesting and perhaps edifying, and they focus in on it, and they write interesting books about them, and then they, too, become part of the patrimony of the Church. Sure. Okay. And there you go. Uh, thank you so much for your question. Call to communion here on EWTN. And back to the phones right now for... Tammy, a first-time caller from Minnesota, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Hey there, Tammy. A blessed Advent to you. What's on your mind today? Thanks so much. Um, so I'm wondering who wrote the Gospel of John, John 1, 2, and 3, and then Revelation. And then I also have um, wondering about the Holy See. Is that the office or the person, or what's the, the history there? Okay. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the the traditional ascription of the fourth gospel is to the Apostle John. Um, most modern critical scholars would doubt that authorship, and they might concede that, say, the fourth uh, gospel was inspired by the teaching of the Apostle John, but probably composed by a community of disciples, you know, some 60 years after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not going to find a lot of scholars that th- think it was, you know, that the Apostle John took took papyrus and 
in, in, in pen in hand and, and wrote it out like that. Although some might still hold that. Um, the, uh, the epistles are written by John the Elder, uh, and there have been traditions that identified him with the author of the fourth gospel. Again, I think most modern scholars would probably dispute that identification. And um, the author of the book of Revelation is somebody named John, somebody <laughs> named John. Um, and so it's, it's best to refer to him as you know, John of Patmos. Uh, again, probably not the author of the fourth gospel, mm. simply because stylistically um, and linguistically, the texts are so very different from one another. It seems improbable they were written by the same person. Tammy, thanks so much for your call from Minnesota. Glad that you're listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Called to communion here on EWTN. We have got something wonderful cooked up for you starting on uh, Sunday morning. Christmas Eve morning on EWTN Radio, the 48 Hours of Christmas, one of our big traditions around here. You can join us all day Christmas Eve and all day Christmas Day for special programs, music from around the world, and so much more. Some of the great things we have for you this year, Midnight Mass from the Holy Land, live from St. Catherine's Church in Bethlehem. We'll also bring you a dramatization of Charles Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol, and the World Over Christmas special with our friend Raymond Arroyo and all of his musical guests that he has on every year. It's always a lot of fun. The 48 Hours of Christmas, it's starting Christmas Eve morning, real early, 12 a.m. Eastern, only on EWTN Radio. We'll get back to the phones in just a second here. A question from uh, Katie on YouTube. Did Mary know that her words in the Magnificat were sung by Hannah in Samuel as well? Um, yeah, that's a great question. What was Mary's knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures? Yeah, Mary, did you know? <laughs> right, yeah, I don't, I don't know that we know the answer to that question. Uh, it was not typical for Jewish girls to go to school, um, and not all Jewish boys went to school. And so literacy was not going to be the rule of the day. Uh, and, you know, in a poor family like Mary's, probably even less so. Um, she would have had a broad knowledge of the, of the biblical tradition, to be sure, um, whether she you know, spent time laboring with the texts or not, committing to memory, is, I think, something that, that we just can't possibly know that about her. Um, I think uh, it goes without a doubt that St. Luke, who composed uh, his, that gospel under his name, would definitely have seen those parallels. And in fact, scholarship on Luke's gospel draws that point explicitly, says that, that Luke drew on Hebrew historiography uh, stylistically to construct his own narrative. All right. Uh, Katie on YouTube, thanks for watching us this afternoon. Uh, also on YouTube is Natalia, or Natalia, I hope I'm pronouncing that properly. Anyway, uh, Natalia says, since my conversion to the Catholic Church in 2001, I haven't heard too many teachings or preachings about some concrete signs of the end times. Why is that? And which books would you recommend? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So uh, the reason I think that you don't hear that much from the pulpit in the Catholic Church about signs of the end times is that the kinds of signs that we find in sacred scripture are perennial. I mean, there'd be things like wars and rumors of wars and uh -huh. mass apostasy and people's love growing cold, things of that sort. Well, that, that pretty much characterizes every age since, <laughs> since the Incarnation. Yeah. And because of that, because of that, Catholics and non-Catholics alike have, have had a I think an unhelpful tendency to assert with uh, unwarranted certainty that their age was the last. 
and and worse, to sort of pick out the offenders from their contemporary society and to name the Antichrist and that sort of thing. And that that approach has been proven wrong for Mm. 2,000 years because everyone who's ever tried that has been wrong. Uh, But it has led to uh, some serious social problems. I mean, that kind of apocalypticism has has undergirded uh, revolutionary activity, violence, uh, you know, deep bigotry. Um, one of the difficulties in the Reformation era, for example, is everybody just knew the other side was the Antichrist. And, of course, you can't make common cause with the Antichrist. You can't meet the Antichrist at the negotiating table. There's only one option with the Antichrist, and that's utter eradication. And so that tendency to to sort of demonize everybody and to view reality in nothing but apocalyptic terms typically doesn't pan out well for things like the you know the common good and social justice. Sure. So I think that's probably why. Now, uh, I think what we can conclude is that the end of the world is closer now than it's ever been, right? My end of the world, my particular end, you know, according to the actuaries, is probably going to happen before I'm, say, 85. And that gives me, you know, a little bit more than 30 years to go. And so the, the practice of meditating on your own death, your mortality, um, the, the finitude of things and the, the, that the world is passing away, those, that kind of attitude of detachment is, 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 is especially necessary for the cultivation of a proper Catholic spirituality, as well as living with an expectation of the Lord's imminent return whenever that might be, and that'll be as he discerns. Sure. Natalia, thanks, you so, thanks so much for uh, watching us today on YouTube. Appreciate that. Here is one from Jeff now. Uh, caller from Jeff, a first-time caller in Yucca Valley, California, listening also on YouTube. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, hi, gentlemen. Hi, Dr. Uh, Anders. Uh, my question is regarding um, uh, the parable of the Lent, or pardon me, of the talents. Um, a while back, you had uh, talked about it, and uh, yesterday you added a great amount of clarity as to the reason why uh, Jesus used parables. In I think it was Matthew 25. My question is: Is in the parable of the talents, the third servant um, burying his talent and then bringing it back and getting uh, pretty well well blasted by the master there? That uh, you know he's a hard man and you know he foul you know he reaps things that he didn't sow and things like that. How does that resolve back to that being either Jesus or the Lord? Um, I fail to see that, and I don't see people really addressing that matter. They all say, you know, the same thing about, oh, you know, you got to multiply your things, your talents, and all that good stuff. What, what's your thoughts on those particular sentences in, the, in that section Yeah, well, of the Bible? I mean, I, the, the, the Lord in the parable is obviously, to me, at any rate, an analog for the Lord, the yeah. one who's going to hold us accountable. Jesus is unambiguously depicted in the Gospels as a judge, and he is the one that will judge the living and the dead at the second coming. And he's the one that will say, away from me, I never knew you, or uh, enter into the joy of your master. Yeah. So that's where we have to leave it. Appreciate that. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for your call. Here is Deborah now, a first-time caller from Columbus, listening on the great St. Gabriel Radio. Hey, Deborah, what's on your mind today? Yeah, uh, this is kind of a hard uh, call to make. But, oh, I want to thank you all, because I came back to the Catholic Church after the death of my new husband, and certainly Dr. Anders and you yourself and all you folks on the radio certainly brought helped bring me home. Oh. <laughs> but the, the painful thing I have to ask is, and I'm kind of even shaking and I might cry, is I, I guess I've just been very discouraged. And, and truly in my heart of hearts, I'm asking this question out of a broken, grief-stricken heart over what is going on and has been going on for the Palestinians for 125 years, starting with the Brits, 
and then the Zionists did 75 years, and now we're seeing a culmination of so much hate. Certainly what Hamas did was wrong and brutal, but it's been going on for 75 years, and I, I really, truly, Dr. Andrews, don't understand Hello, did we lose you? Did we did we lose you? We're having some. Uh, there were some phone issues with that call, but okay. Uh, so I got the, the the thrust of the question was um, that she is distressed over uh, the political situation in the Middle East, in particular Gaza and the West Bank. I, yeah. I assume, and and, mm-hmm. and the existence of the Jewish state and injustices against the Palestinians and so forth. And uh, I think that what she was where she was headed is what is the Catholic Church's response to this, and what should we do about it? So if that's the question, I'll try to answer that question. So uh, as you know, there are, there are a lot of players in the world that believe that they have a legal claim to the land based on some kind of antecedent theological conviction. And so, uh, you know, there are, there are religious Jews that believe that they have a, a religious right to reestablish the borders of the Davidic Empire. Right, okay. which clearly aren't contiguous with the borders of the modern state of Israel, and that that religious ideology would uh, undergird at least some of the settlement activity in the West Bank, for example. Um, uh, uh, at the same time, there are religious Muslims that maintain that all of the Holy Land is uh, Dar al-Islam, right? Part of lands that were historically governed by Muslims, and at least as I understand their political theology, once a piece of real estate has passed under Muslim rule and been under Sharia law, then in the Muslim uh, conception of things, uh, nobody else in reality ever has a claim on that land again other than Muslim rulers. And so they, they, want, they, they are deeply offended that anybody would claim otherwise. Well, those are obviously irreconcilable positions. Yeah. Okay? Now, what is the Catholic Church's stance on that? Well, we're not Jewish Zionists and we're not Islamists. Right, so from the Catholic point of view, nobody has a theological claim to land, period. Right, and questions of of national boundaries and ethnic minorities and ownership of property and land and uh, human rights, all of these things are questions to be determined rationally uh, through through political means that are obviously going to have to require negotiation and some give and take on both sides and and. Uh, the Holy See doesn't really have a dog in the fight, except with respect to the universal questions of human dignity and care for the poor and the marginalized. Right? Um, as you know, at the time of the formation of the Jewish state of Israel, um, Palestine was uh, politically a, a, a bit of a no man's land. I mean, the Ottoman Empire uh, had collapsed. The British had taken over the protectorate of it, and the creation of the modern state of Israel was at least in part, large measure, in response to uh, pogroms and persecutions against Jews that were pretty well documented in the Second World War and, and all over the world. And yeah. the idea of a Jewish state where Jews could be free to construct their own destiny motivated uh, the majority of the members of the UN to vote uh, in favor of the creation of the modern state of Israel. So it, it's, it, that's, that's somewhat different from, you know, your typical, typical colonial conquest where someone goes out and militarily conquers another people and subjugates them. This This was something that um, you know, the world powers more or less conceded to. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, there were historic occupants of those lands who, though they lacked a particular national identity, I mean, before the modern state of Israel, there wasn't a people group 
that called themselves Palestinians. Um, nevertheless, there were people who were historic inhabitants of those lands, and many of them were dispossessed by it. And they obviously have grievances. And I, I know some of those people, and their grievances have been long held and deeply felt. And it's a it's a pretty difficult situation all yeah, around, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I remember the first time I was ever uh, confronted with this debate. Um, I, I actually heard a debate at my high school when I was a teenager. Really? Between a, uh, a, a, a uh, an Israeli citizen and a Palestinian. And I remember listening to the first guy and thinking, oh, he's absolutely right. And listening to the second guy and thinking, he's absolutely right. And uh -oh. realizing uh, there is just no easy way out of this mm, problem, right? Yeah. Um, uh, but the Pope has said uh, that he, of course, opposes... Uh, war on civilians and, you know, war in any event and, and urges a peaceful resolution of these conflicts. And I, I think there's really no way forward as long as intransigent, intransigent ideologues cling to um, religiously motivated sort of fundamentalist positions that admit of no compromise. As long as that's what the frame of reference is, there's just going to be an impasse and no one's going to be able to make any headway. Deborah, thanks so much for your call today from Columbus. Here's a question now from John in Rio Grande Valley, Texas. What is the difference between an apostolic pardon and reconciliation? Yeah, reconciliation is a sacrament where we confess our sins and uh, we make an act of contrition and the priest in Christ's name absolves us of our sins and imposes a penance, uh, which we then complete to to uh, obtain the remission of the temporal punishment due to sin. Mm -hmm. An apostolic pardon is in fact an indulgence where if there is uh, temporal punishment due to sin for which we have not made adequate atonement, uh, the possibility exists of a complete remission of all temporal punishment due to sin. So it's not the sacrament, it is in fact the grant of an indulgence. And finally this from Grant, God commanded his people not to make idols, but my friend says that Catholics do this. How can I refute this? Right, so Catholics are guilty of idolatry, and Protestants are guilty of idolatry, and Jews are guilty of idolatry, and pagans are guilty of idolatry, and atheists are guilty of idolatry, and pretty much everybody on the planet is guilty of idolatry, <laughs> because idolatry is worshiping or valuing something more than God himself. And, and I think that's something that we can all find lodged in our hearts at one time or another. Um, now, in terms of the manufacturing of religious artwork or imagery, that is not condemned by the Bible. Uh, in fact, it's commanded by the Bible, and Catholics have been avid uh, producers of religious artwork for 2,000 years, and we don't think that that is in violation of the of the commandments. Um, however, uh, you know, have I ever committed idolatry in my heart by worshiping or desiring something more than God? Guilty as charged, yeah, sure. for which I need to go to confession. Yes, indeed. All right, Dr. David Anders, I want to wish you and your wonderful family a very blessed Christmas. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate you too. Oh, thank you. And we appreciate all of you for tuning in today. On behalf of our great team here, Michael, Jeff, and Ace, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. We will see you next time here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Merry Christmas to you. We'll see you next time. God bless.